Well, good morning to you. If you're new, my name is Steve, uh, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in a book that you probably do not spend a lot of time looking at around Christmas time. Uh, and you will think to yourself through the course of this message, why in the world did he pick this message uh, for Christmas? Uh, I don't know. So I'll just get that out of the way too. And we'll, uh, we'll finish up. We are finishing the book of Malachi. If you've been with us, uh, you know over the course of these seven messages that this has been a book filled with um, arguments. It's been filled with the apathy of the people of God who don't think it's worth serving him and following him and listening to him. Uh, and it's also been filled with anticipation. Um, because we're not in the New, we'll be in the New Testament this evening. You know, come on back and I promise we'll handle that. Uh, but this is a text about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is primarily a moment in time where God intervenes in human history. He shows up, and virtually it shows up in almost all of the prophetic writings. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Obadiah, here in Malachi, Joel. It's in a variety of places. Uh, and it's a day of great severity, great sobriety. Uh, the people of God looked forward to a time when God would come and set things right. And throughout the course of the book of Malachi, you've seen a variety of challenges to God in the way he administers his plan, his purposes, his judgments on the earth so that the people of God really wrestle with the fact that God isn't addressing wickedness as, as quickly as he should that they wrestle with whether or not he's a loving God. They wrestle in times of great lack and great dearth in their society, wondering where is this God who is over the rains and over our harvests and we're back in our land, but we certainly aren't successful. And consistently what Malachi has been doing has been confronting the people with their poor theology of God and who he is. And as this book closes, it brings us to a point where these are the last words of your Old Testament. Uh, and these words sustain, essentially, the people of God for the next four centuries. And any time that you read the last words, or you hear the last words, or you've been around people who have given them and spoken their last words, you know that they're filled with meaning. Uh, they're filled with brevity. They have a tendency to compress the most important things into the fewest amount of sentences. And that's what you have here in Malachi chapter 4. Uh, this book, I'll just tell you, this book ends hard. It's not, uh, it's not Christmas lights and warm and gentle. It's get ready, otherwise I'm going to level everything. Uh, so Malachi as a prophet, it's actually so uncomfortable the way this book ends that many commentators think that the last couple of verses are additions or have been uh, moved out of their normal uh, sense of writing because we have a really hard time with hard endings, don't we? We want it to be they lived happily ever after. But that's not how Malachi ends. Malachi ends with a charge and a promise to take seriously what God has been saying. So this is an important section in your scriptures. But what I want to tell you as we look at this is the majority of what you have in Malachi chapter 4 has not happened yet. Which means we as the people of God in 2023, almost 24, are closer to these truths than even the people in Malachi's day were. In fact, when Jesus comes to the end of his ministry in Matthew chapter 24, he starts talking about the signs of the end of the age, which we still aren't there yet. 
And Jesus starts talking about how the temple will be destroyed, how the Antichrist will rise, how persecution will rise. And then he goes into a series of essentially stories or metaphors talking about that time. And he said the day of the Lord will come quickly. It'll come suddenly like a thief in the night. One will be taken and one will be left. And Jesus says, be ready. He tells a story of ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom to come. And he tells them, be ready. He tells them a story of the man with the talents who are given to do business for a while until the master returns and holds them to account and says, when I'm gone, be faithful with what I've given you. You have the end of the age where he separates the sheep and the goats. And people say, when did we see you? And Jesus says, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. Enter into the joy of your master. So even as we move into the New Testament, the New Testament has no lack of this kind of material that you have in Malachi chapter 4 because there may be some of you in here who are visitors, some who have come to Charleston to visit family, some who may never set foot in our church again. And one of my duties and obligations and the duties and obligations of God's prophets and God's preachers throughout the years is to prepare you to meet God. And the Christmas season has a tendency for us to look back, doesn't it? To look back at the time when Jesus came, to look back at the time in the incarnation. But all through the New Testament, in fact, all through the Old Testament prophetic literature, there's a constant refrain to look forward. And the way that you can tell that you are waiting well is by how well you prepare. Who has been preparing food for tomorrow? You've been, okay, yeah, four of you. You're going to go to 7-Eleven tonight. Who's been preparing presents? You've been preparing for family to come. You've been preparing all of, right, all of that. All of this season for us as we go into Christmas is just, is just preparation. And all of a sudden we look up, my wife and I look up and we, do, we kind of do a, a countdown to the days and all of a sudden we go, oh man, it's the 24th. What happened? Where did December go? Because we've been spending all of our time in preparation for this day to come. But in terms of a thought experiment, just imagine that you get to tomorrow and you haven't prepared anything. You get to tomorrow and there's no presents under the tree and you don't know what you're going to eat and the tree is up but there's no lights. Your kids come downstairs and they're all there waiting for Christmas and the stores are closed. The way I know that you are anticipating and living in hope is how you are preparing today for that day. And that's what Malachi chapter 4 is about, all right? Well, let's pray and see what God will teach us here. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word that you would encourage us, that you would, for us as New Testament Christians who look back to our great confidence, our wisdom, our sanctification, and our redemption, the man Jesus Christ, as we look back to who he is and how he came into the world as evidence of your love for sinners, we pray that you would give us the strength and the wisdom to order our hearts today in preparation for that day when we see you. May we learn what you would have to teach us here in the book of Malachi and shape us and guide us and cause us to be men and women filled with anticipation, prepared for the time when we will uh, leave this earth and step into glory, into a place of great wholeness and healing and restoration and joy. May we uh, live with eyes of faith toward that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to start here just as a little bit of a, a running start in Malachi 3, 17. Uh, all of what you have in chapter 4 is not really chapter 4 in the Hebrew. The Hebrew really has one whole chapter in chapter 3. We break it up in the English. I don't really know why. I wasn't around when they did that. 
but it's there for us uh, to start in Malachi chapter 4. But Malachi 4 verse 1 starts with an explanation of what comes before. So I want to give you just real quick, real quick, what comes before the explanation that shows up in Malachi 4.1. And from 17 and 18. And it'll give you a reminder of what we looked at last week. But here's the promise in Malachi 3.17. Just look up a couple verses where God says, They shall be mine says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And one of the things we looked at last week was the tension and the pressure that the people of God felt for not having their obedience recognized. So much so that they look out on the wicked and the evildoers of their day where they were, and they were saying of them that they test God and they escape. God doesn't answer. God doesn't show up. God doesn't hold the wicked to account. And worse than that, God doesn't bless the righteous. He doesn't see my obedience. And what we said to close last week was that God makes up this treasured possession to say that God is the very treasure of his people and he is their treasure, and there is this unity and joy in the fact that God knows our name when we put our faith in him. When you and I wait well for God to show up, God writes those names down and said, I see you putting your faith and your trust and your hope in me. I have not forgotten you, but there's coming a day when I will make up my treasured possession and you shall be mine. And the end of the Malachi chapter 3 in our Bibles says that there's a distinction between those who serve God and those who don't serve God. Now that day is, is consistent. It's going to be mentioned four different times throughout the course of the remainder of our time together. And as I said, it refers to the day of the Lord, the time when God intervenes in human history. He shows up. And on that day, there is no more patience. There is no more waiting. When God acts, it's finality. The timing and the anticipation is over because God arrives and shows up. So God takes us forward in the book of Malachi to a day when he makes up his treasured possession and he, we see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Now, uh, the temptation that we looked at really at the end of the book of, of Malachi chapter 3 had to do with fighting doubt. We, we struggle, for a lot of us, you know, a lot of us have um, things that we are waiting for things that we are praying for. You have unanswered prayers this morning, things that you're praying and God hasn't answered yet, right? Things that you're pleading with God to do and, and we haven't seen God move yet in those ways. And the temptation at the end of Malachi chapter 3 was really to, to cave into doubt and to doubt that God's doing anything, to doubt that God's engaged, to doubt that God cares, to doubt that God's involved, excuse me, involved whatsoever. So to fight that temptation, Malachi gave us this promise of God's intervention one day. And, and it was a great comfort to us that not only will we be, make up God's treasured possession, but he'll also spare us as a, as a man spares his son. Now what you move into in Malachi chapter 4 is the destiny and the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The dis, I'm sorry, the, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked shows up in the destiny of the wicked. And that's how Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 starts. So we've, we've started with two things that are good news for those who fear God. Now we move into the consequences for those who don't serve God in Malachi 4 verse 1. Take a look. Verse 1. For behold, the day is coming. Now this present day, the day that we mentioned in 317 and 18, was good news for those who feared God, right? Good news. Made up God's treasured possession. They will get spared from judgment. This day for the wicked, though, is going to be a different kind of day. 
Look at what he says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. Amos says, uh, woe to you who desire the, who, the day of the Lord. For it's like um, a man who meets a bear who uh, can't find, it's like a mama bear who can't find its cubs. It's this incredible illustration that Amos uses that I just butchered right there in front of you. It was great. You can read it yourself. Uh, but it's like you walking into a mama bear who can't find their cubs. It's a bad day. That's a bad, I'm told. I've never met a mama bear. Maybe you have and you got away. It's a bad day. So the point of this passage, as I ramble, is that there's a day coming burning like an oven. Now fire has been mentioned in the book of Malachi before. If you've been with us, you've seen fire used, particularly in relationship to the way that God refines and restores his people. Right? It says that the messenger will come and he'll sit as a refiner of gold. He'll refine those metals and bring them to a point of purity, removing all wickedness, removing all of that dross and the, uh, the impurities from that metal, and they'll refine them to a point of great purity and great value. But fire here in this context with those who don't serve God is used differently. This fire is used in the context of a burning oven. Think a blast furnace, and that's the image that you would have here. The day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. Now, I want you to just keep your finger in, in chapter 4. Go back just one page in your Bible and look with me at 2.15. And this arrogant and evildoers is a group of people that Malachi has had a real problem with. Uh, two, I'm sorry, 2.15? 3.15. 15. Like I said, 3.15. Uh, 3.15 says this, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. What do arrogant and evildoers look like in our day? Well, they look successful. They look influential. They look like they're revered. They look like they have all of their no problems in their life whatsoever. And we closed last week with Psalm 73, looking at the consternation of Asaph as he wrestled with the fact that all the arrogant look successful. Well, here... In the end, in Malachi 4, there's a day coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be what? Stubble. Think grass clippings. Think the shaft that caught, think the, um, uh, you know when you eat sunflower seeds? And there's a little, it's not the shell, it's inside the shell. It's like that skin of a peanut. You know, you eat those and you get them in your teeth and your wife can tell. That's, that's what we're talking about. Shaft all the way through the Bible. It's, it's worthless and useless material. It's good for nothing. It's totally to be discarded. It's like you putting old grass clippings into the burn bin. God says that's the kind of day that will be experienced by those who don't serve God. Those who don't fear God are headed for a day where they don't experience joy. They don't experience God being their treasured possession. They experience wrath and fury. That day, he goes on in verse 1, that is coming, shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Root, you know, if there's a flash fire, typically it burns the top of all the foliage, but what comes back and the roots are untouched. But this kind of judgment will take root, which means future security, and branch, which means any future faithfulness and fruitfulness. We'll take the whole thing down. That the blast furnace takes care of all of the wicked, consuming them completely from any, from any future whatsoever and any security whatsoever. This day will set them ablaze so that they will leave them neither root nor 
branch. Psalm 73, we didn't look at this last week, but this is what Psalm 73 says about them. It says about the wicked, that truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Now, in one verse, God says this is the destiny of all the wicked. This is the destiny of all those who refuse to fear God and to serve him. Those who flaunt God, refuse to consider his word, consider his truth, consider any of those things. But this day, as is typical in the Old Testament, has two sides to it. We've already seen two pieces of good news of those who trust God, those who fear God, those who hope in who he is. Number one, they make up God's treasured possession. And number two, that they're spared from judgment. They're spared from this day. But what Malachi is about to say is way better than just those two things. It's good news to be rightly related to God. It's also good news to be spared from judgment. But this day, for God's people, will be way better even than that. Look at verse 2. But for you who fear my name, which has been the consistent positive affirmation of these people. These people have a heart that recognizes that God is sovereign, God is good, God is in control, God has purposes that he executes in his timing and that he's faithful and he's able to be trusted. That's what it means to fear God. To recognize that God, in this season, you are over it and in it and all around it. And I can trust your purposes and your plan even when I don't understand what you're doing. But there is coming a day when all of the purposes of God will be made plain. Where, you know, we don't do this now. It's hard for us to understand. You don't understand what God's doing in your life, do you? Yeah, I don't understand what God's doing in my life either. And I do this for a living. Isn't that terrible? But there's going to come a day when you'll look back on your life and God will reveal to you and show to you and you will say to yourself, that makes total sense. I will, God, I understand what you did in my life. And when God is revealed for who he is, nobody is going to doubt his purposes. Nobody is going to doubt his plan. Everybody is going to stand back in awe and go, God is so incredibly wise for what he has done. Now, watch this. But for you who fear my name. Now, we have the image of a blast furnace, right? Watch this image. Way better. For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Our, our back porch faces uh, east. And every day, the sun comes up. You can write that down. That's, uh, that's good. And every day, the sun comes up without me doing anything. I have very little to do, yes, nothing to do with the sun coming up every single day. And if I'm early enough, if I get up early enough, I can make it out to work out in the garage and come back. I just have a little bit of time before the sun rises. And every time the sun rises, it reminds me of this verse. It reminds me that God in his providential care and concern for the all of creation causes the sun to rise every single day. And the picture of this day for God's people is a picture of longing for that day, right? We're not there yet. We haven't arrived yet. We don't see the ultimate destruction of all the wicked yet, right? But there is coming that day when the sun will rise on a new kind of day. 
and over creation rises what can be personified. Many commentators think, some of the oldest commentators think, that this is the personification of Jesus himself upon his return. When God himself rises, when the son of righteousness rises, then the creation of his, I'm sorry, the, the results of his arrival treat those who fear him much differently. Aren't you encouraged by that? Isn't that good news? That when he comes back, he comes back not like a blast furnace for us. He comes back. God, Thessalonians says that God did not destine us for wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Malachi gives you the day when he acts and he eliminates the wicked, but for God's people, he comes like a sunrise. How gentle is a sunrise? How joyful is a sunrise? How warming is a sunrise? And the effects of the sunrise is more than just savior from judgment. The effects of the sunrise in this context is healing. See what it says? The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Do you have some things that only a resurrection will fix? Do you have some aches and some pains in this world of, thing, of, of problems that are kind of the minor key in your life that will not resolve? Do you know that for those who know and trust Christ that there's coming a day when everything will be resolved? You can, you can almost hear the echoes of Revelation 21 where he will wipe every tear from their eye, can't you? So as the sun of righteousness rises, the effect of that upon those people who have waited for God, who have feared God, who have trusted God, who have even misunderstood God and don't understand what God is doing, God comes in healing to them. So there's not only healing, there's not only restoration, but there's also joy. Look at the last part of the verse. You'll go out leaping like calves from the stall. Remember when you could jump? I spent a little bit of time in Texas. I'm not a farmer. Maybe you grew up with livestock. I did not. I grew up in Southern California where livestock is rare. I spent some time in Texas, and in Texas you have lots of farms, lots of just massive amounts of, everything's huge in Texas because you can see for miles. And uh, this was probably 20 years ago, and I'd never had this experience before. I never had it since. And it wasn't a calf, but I was driving uh, on my way to my house, and I was driving down in front of several people who owned livestock. And I was driving, you have to go very slow to not spook the animals. And in the middle of me driving, I had the windows down and music on, whatever I was doing, and I, I looked to my right, and I saw something that I did not expect to see. I saw a baby goat. Now, when I saw the baby goat, it was like the goat had, one, never seen a human. Uh, two, was incredibly excited that I was there because it was jumping kind of up over the car window, about that level. And it would, it would just kind of... <laughs> like, like right alongside me. And I thought to myself, that must be what this is about because this baby goat was just thrilled to be alive. Just ecstatic that it was daytime. I didn't know anything about animals, but I thought that's got to be close to what this is talking about. Now, it wasn't until years later, maybe two years ago, that we got rabbits. Now, we have rabbits in our home, which are, they're like, they're just prey animals. So they're always nervous. <laughs> uh, 
And I'm not a small man, so every time the rabbits see me, they're always like. (laughs) But what I discovered, and we discovered this together as a family, is that rabbits, when they experience joy or pleasure or contentment of some kind, they do what is called a binky. Now, a binky is basically what this baby goat was doing, where they just, just briefly pause and then jump in the air real hard. They just run around, jump in the air real hard. They do this, it's really weird, totally, it looks super awkward. But it's evidence of their contentment and their happiness with that day. Anybody have a dog? You have a dog that gets the zoomies? You do? You know what those are called? They're technically called fraps. Now, I'm serious, you can look this up when you get home. Fraps stand for frenetic random activity periods. Somebody somewhere who's a veterinarian said, I'm going to trademark fraps. But you have animals that just, they burst into, they can't, they almost can't, can, yeah, how about cats? You Cats do that too, don't they? You have cats? Cats do that too. They run around crazy. They, they can't even help themselves. And this is the picture. Like, I'm sorry, like some of you don't dance, don't jump, don't, you know, you barely smile on Sundays. But I'm telling you, there's coming a day when the sun of righteousness rises over creation and all of our woes and our difficulties and hardships and pains are healed and you're going to jump and I'm going to video it. (laughs) See, Malachi gives this picture of creation. This is why Paul says in Romans 8 that creation itself groans to be released from its bondage. And Malachi says, you're going to jump for joy. Now, it's not only, that's good. It's, it's more than that. So not only do we make up his treasure possession, number two, are we spared from judgment? Number three, we're completely healed. Number four, we completely jump with joy and thankfulness for what he has done. Verse three, you shall tread down the wicked for there'll be ashes under the soles of your feet. The wicked that give you such consternation nowadays, that look fruitful and strong and uh, unable to be affected by the woes and the pains of life. One day they'll be completely handled by God, so much so that they'll be just like cinders that you walk on on the driveway. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. See, do you see how Malachi paints this picture of anticipation that is almost too good to even read. You haven't thought about the future with God like this. The joy that is here, the healing that is here, the fulfillment that is here, the final yes to all of the anticipations and the longings of our heart that is finally answered by God. God says, on the day that I act is literally the day that I am preparing. See, we're, we're meant to long, Christians. We're meant to dream. We're meant to yearn for the day. Like, this world is not our home. Our bodies don't last forever. This has to go into the ground. We have to receive a new one. That day is coming. And we fail to do Christmas justice if we don't, for at least a portion of our time, turn our hearts to the day and time when not only has Christ come, but that Christ will return and he will set all things right. 
Don't just look back. For you to embrace the full scope of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament is to confess that there are things that God has prepared for you that are far better than you've ever imagined. So we're meant to dream. We're meant to hope. God's people are meant to be like this. They're meant to look at something so compelling that they reorder their today in preparation for that day. So Malachi ends here in the last few verses in a way to help God's people prepare. Because the anticipation is one thing, but to live wisely means that you take stock of the fact that that day is coming and I need to prepare today for that day, right? I need to prepare for that day. And what Malachi does to close his prophetic word to God's people is to tell them how you can prepare for that day. And because we're 2,000 years closer to this day, this is how you can prepare for that day. How can you prepare for the day that when God returns, when he intervenes in the affairs of human history? He closes the book with a command and a promise so that God's people really would be prepared to know how to order their lives and what to look for. Because if we know that there's a day that Jesus is returning, then I want to know, and I think you would want to know, what's the best way to prepare? What should I do? What should my life look like in 2024 if I'm preparing for the fact that one day I will meet God face to face? When I'm preparing for the day one day when he will separate the sheep from the goats and I want to be his treasured possession. What should I do? What should my life look like? Verse 4 is the singular command in this section. Remember, the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Many commentators look at this section and they say this has echoes of the book of Deuteronomy. So I want you to see this. Just I don't want to read it to you. I want you to see it. Keep your finger there in Malachi. Go back to Deuteronomy with me. Deuteronomy chapter 4. This phrase, the statutes and the rules, happens the most commonly in this book of Deuteronomy. And it mentions, it's mentioned several times here, right at the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. Deuteronomy 4, verse 1 says this, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. That's a false God. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I've taught you statutes and rules. As the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Do you see the refrain? Statutes and rules, statutes and rules, statutes and rules. Look at verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. 
Make them known to your children and to your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. So come back to Malachi chapter 4. You know what Deuteronomy is? Deuteronomy is the book that is the hinge between the generations. It's the second giving of the law because God's people who came out of Exodus came to the promised land, didn't believe that God could bring them in, and God said, you will wander in the desert for 40 years. And when that generation dies, Moses brings them back up to the promised land and gives them the second time the law of God so that they might know what they ought to do. And the question is, has, has God's word changed from generation to generation? What's the answer? No. It hasn't changed from generation to generation. That's why we'll give it to them again. So now, think about that. Now here's the handoff of the statutes and rules in Deuteronomy from generation to generation. And here we are generations later at the end of the prophetic writings. And what does Malachi say? Remember the word that I gave through Moses. God's word still holds fast to direct and inform and encourage and guide God's people generation after generation after generation. So how do we prepare to meet God? We go back to what God has said. Does God love us enough to guide our lives and to give us wisdom and insight to understand how to relate to him and one another well? Say yes. Yes, he does. So he gives us his word that is transgenerational. Now, we have God's word. Now watch this, verse five, another popular biblical character. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Well, that's interesting. We have two significant Old Testament figures, one representative of the law and another representative of the prophets, which makes us think, why is it that we need a prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord? So we need to consider, what is it that the prophetic order actually did? Why did God give the law and then just, uh, not just give the law and then do nothing? Because God's people, I mean, Moses goes up on the mountain, they build a golden calf within 20 minutes of being on Mount Sinai, right? So my, Moses has to come down, grind up the thing. Aaron says, oh, I, I didn't know what happened. It just jumped out. And I don't, help me. And Moses grinds it up, makes everybody drink it. Moses is tough. So he does that. But consistently, the prophetic order, when we think about Elijah, Elijah shows up at a time of one of the absolute worst levels of apostasy the nation had ever seen. He goes up against the most wicked king and most wicked queen in Israel's history in Ahab and Jezebel. And Elijah's job is to call the people back to God, which is essentially the role of every prophet from the giving of the law forward. They're always restoration and reformation guys. They consistently show up on the scene and go, everything's a mess, isn't it? And everybody goes, yeah, it's totally a mess. Where's God? We don't know what he's doing. And they go, you've sinned against God. You need to go back. You need to obey. You need to repent. You need to come back. And God in his faithfulness after generation after generation after generation continues in his mercy to send people who rebuke them, who rebuke his people for their sin to restore the relationship. 
Prophets aren't just these angry guys who yell in the wilderness at God's people. They are evidence of God's mercy so that God's people would be rightly related to him again. So when John the Baptist, who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, starts preaching in the wilderness, what's he tell people? Repent. Get right with God. See, the coming and the sending of Elijah is another overwhelming. Would you be done with God's people at this point, Malachi? Wouldn't you be go like, I'm done with the questions. Do what I say. But God in his kindness and mercy continues to, to wrestle with the people. He continues to engage their critiques. He continues to invite them into relationship with himself. Calls them to turn and repent. And here in the future, he continues to do it. He says, I'm going to send you another prophet that will call you back to repentance so that we might be rightly related before judgment falls. That's how much God loves salvation. So all through the Bible, these prophets function to validate that what God says is true. They call people back to rightly relating to God through his truth and through his word. But there's one more aspect of this that shows up in verse 6. Not only will he come, he will be sent by God, but in verse 6, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that's how Malachi ends. But you'll notice what's interesting here about this is Malachi isn't necessarily speaking about good family relationships, good nuclear family relationships, mom, dad, kids, rightly related. That's an implication to it, clearly, that all through the Old Testament, it talks about the home being the, the, the unit out of which the teaching of the next generation happens. But if, what's, if what we've read from Deuteronomy is true, if what we see in this book is this call to remember what God has said in the past, then what Elijah comes to do is to restore the generational passing on of God's truth. Which is a lot of times what happened. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you'll notice in the book of Judges that consistently there's a prophet who comes in a situation where God's people are oppressed and sinning and he calls them to account and they repent and God raises up a judge and that judge judges them and, and the, the land has success and the people are restored in their relationship. Then the judge dies and the people fall into sin and they come back into the cycle again. And God in his faithfulness continues to send prophets. God continues to raise up judges until they die and God's people fall into sin again. But here in this verse, the coming of Elijah is, is interesting because the fathers all the way through the book of Malachi have referred to what has come before. That's referred to the previous generation. So that we've looked at the covenant that God made with Eli. We've gone back to look at how God loves his people because he chose Jacob. We go back to the way the fathers were rightly related to God at the first when the law was given. 
And the prophet in his job here is really to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. For the fathers, the generation before, to turn and to look at the next generation and to say, hold on to the truth of God's word. Believe that God's promises hold certain and sure throughout the generations. It is worth it to fear God. And one of our great ambitions here as a church is to focus on the next generation of Christians who are coming. Because if we don't pass on the next generation to the next generation, the truth of God, our church is done in one generation. And one of the effects of the preaching of God's word, the calling people to repentance, is the longing in the hearts of the previous generation to maintain the truth of God's word in the subsequent generations. Amen, old folks? So we long for the day when our sons, our grandsons, our daughters, our granddaughters continue to hold to the faith of God's word that he's delivered to us. But also, there's the turning of the children to the fathers. So there's a reception, there's a handoff, right? That the previous generation holds to the truth of God's word. We fear his name, we trust in his word, and we believe it's so important that you might hand that, we might hand it off to our children, this next generation. But also, the generation of children turns to their parents to receive in heartfelt repentance, the truth of God's word, that God is faithful, he will be faithful. He was faithful in their day. One of the things you consistently see throughout the course of the patriarchal period is God will show up to uh, Jacob and God will say, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. Why does God do that? Because God wants him to know, I was faithful to Abraham. I was faithful to Isaac and I'll be faithful to you. See, that's the turning of the hearts of the previous generation. Our kids are getting to the point now where we talk to them about what it means to have a personal relationship with God, and we have to say to them, you have to walk with God. You have to trust who he is. You have to believe in his word. You have to pray to him. I've heard it put like this, that God has no grandsons. God has no granddaughters. He's got sons, and he's got daughters. Because this next generation... We want them to walk with God. We want them to know God. We want them to live in such a way that their hope in Christ's return is not merely anticipation, but they are living wisely to prepare to meet God. Amen? So Malachi closes with this call of God sending again another prophet so that it's fulfilled when you get into Luke chapter 1, partially, I believe, because I believe Malachi, uh, Eli, Elijah will show up again. But Luke chapter 1 says this of John the Baptist, that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll restore that relationship with God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. See, the results of those prophets, of that prophet being sent, was the restoration of God's people. And our hope at Christmas time is that we would be found faithful in our generation to continue to hand on the, the truth of what God has given to us so that future generations might turn and receive what God has deposited to our hands and carry on the tradition of fearing God until the day that he comes. Let's pray. Father, at Christmas time, a time filled with family, a time filled with anticipation and preparing our hearts, would we be found faithful 
in our own families to teach the word, to remember the truth that you have given, to be men and women characterized not merely by anticipation, but characterized by preparation for that day when we see you face to face. Would we be found faithful stewards of what you've put into our hands? We pray for the next generation of men and women in this room who will raise their own children, who will have to trust you for your provision in their day, who will wrestle with the very same things that the people in Malachi's day did. They will wrestle with what it looks like for the wicked to succeed. They will wrestle with struggling to understand your character and your plans and your purposes. So, Father, as we celebrate this Christmas season, would we turn their hearts and eyes to Jesus? Would you stoke our longing and affection and anticipation for that day so that we might order our lives appropriately? And for that, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.